This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 594 and we welcome Dr. Stephanie Taylor, who's also an architect, and we're going to talk about how buildings affect and how, how building conditions can affect infections and infection control. We're going to talk about buildings and their relationship to health. So looking forward to a fascinating discussion with the doctor here. Before we get started, we want to make sure we thank our sponsors. They are the reason IAQ Radio is still free. IAQ Radio Association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Learn more at acgih.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. Learn more at cirscience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Learn more at iaqa.org. AIHA, healthier workplaces, a healthier world. Learn more at AIHA.org. And the Restoration Industry Association. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. IAQ Radio Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Learn more at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Victor Cafaro, Richmond, Virginia, who identified 1859 as the year that Samuel Smiles published the world's first self-help book. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, July 31, 2020, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's IQ Radio trivia question. What are the five main routes of disease transmission? Back to you, Joe. Okay, this week we welcome Dr. Stephanie Taylor. Dr. Taylor is an MD. She's also got a master's in architecture and a certified infection control. Uh, she uh, started as the CEO of Taylor Healthcare Commissioning Inc. After working as a physician for many decades, she obtained her master's in architecture and that infection control certification and she's been helping facilities in both avoiding infections and saving money as they continue to try and help our, you know, help patients without uh, causing more issues. Also, I want to mention she's a member of the, uh, let's see, that would be the ASHRAE Epidemic Task Force. We had uh, Bill Bonfleth on a few weeks back, and Dr. Taylor is also a part of that task force. Welcome to the show, Dr. Taylor. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I'm honored to be here. We're, we're thrilled to have you. We've been uh, looking forward to this interview. Let's, let's start with uh, a little bit on your background. Um, you're up in Stowe, Vermont. You've worked in the Boston area for many years. I don't know if people realize how close uh, Vermont is to, to the Boston area. How did you get into medicine? And then from there, what led you into your current, you know, kind of niche of uh, architecture and combining buildings and health. So that's interesting, Joe. No one's ever asked me about my medical, how I got into medicine. So I'm one of those people who um, always likes to look underneath things to, to try to see what's not easily visible. So from a very young age, uh, the human body fascinated me in the whole world of cells and organs and tissues. And then as I grew older, you know, as an adolescent, the other parts of medicine, the human interaction parts really interest me. So going into medicine was a very natural fit for me. Um, so I went to Harvard Med School and done several residencies. 
Um, and along the same lines of being curious about things that aren't immediately visible, I've done quite a bit of cell biology research. So then fast forward to uh, being a practicing physician, primarily in pediatric oncology, I began to see too many of my uh, pediatric patients getting sick from infections they got from the hospital, from their hospitalization. And as a physician, we were focusing on hand hygiene and antibiotic regimens and um, sort of behavioral approaches to controlling infections. But it seemed to me that the building was somehow involved by the, where the patient rooms were, or it just seemed like the building was somehow a component of these infections. But as I started, as I tried to talk with the facility managers, you know, they had a whole different vocabulary and a whole different knowledge set than I did. So I continued to struggle with understanding why uh, these infections from the hospitalization were so bad. So eventually, in 2005, I went back to school to get my master's in architecture. Uh, and then I designed hospitals for some, for several years after that to really experience that process. Um, and then I began to work really focusing on how to decrease infections in hospitals. And the thing that's remarkable um, in a way, but maybe now it doesn't seem so, so surprising, what we've found about the role of the hospital building in patient healing or in patient infections actually applies to all of us in buildings. So clearly there's some differences when you're a patient, you have vulnerabilities that you don't have when you're at home or working. And the hospital building is different from our home or office. But the trends that we see in hospitals with infections, we are seen in all buildings. So interestingly, my work now um, is around all of us that spend time in buildings, which is most people. And being in pediatric oncology, did you, I mean, how common is it for these, these kids are fighting off a terrible disease and um, how common is it for them to get some type of other infection from being in a hospital or being in, you know, maybe in their home environment or uh, being in a daycare or something like that? Well, so it's, it's hard for me to answer, you know, how common is it for a child to get an infection or an immunocompromised child? But in the hospital, the numbers that most hospitals will publish around the percentage of patients that get an infection from the hospitalization is anywhere from five to 10%. However, hmm. that number is really underestimated. It's, a, it's a, a low, that's a low number. It's really higher than that. And the, this whole problem has come to light since really since 2000, when the Institute of Medicine published a paper called To Air is Human. Um, and it uncovered the magnitude of, of deaths and, and you know, poor outcomes from infections. So in my experience, I think I would say about 15% of patients who go through a hospitalization uh, have a, a resulting wow. infection. That seems that that's really high. Um, what, in your experience, what what are the most common reasons for that? Is it commonly related to the building, or is it more, maybe more often like person to person? Well, again, that's um, there are a lot of factors involved, and certainly the degree of illness of the patient. Uh, how immunocompromised you are or how impaired your mobility is will influence say pneumonia or pressure sores. And then there's a the whole question of how compliant is the hospital staff and visitors with hand hygiene, but we're finding that the building and how the building is managed actually changes a patient's susceptibility to getting an infection. And again, you know, we're not just talking about, hospitals, we're now learning that some of the factors that influence patient infections in a hospital also influence the everyone's vulnerability to getting sick in buildings, in your home, in your offices, in schools. So for those listeners who aren't really interested in hospital, the hospital environment, it's fascinating to learn that 
the same dynamics apply in all buildings. And one of the things that you noticed across buildings is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that relative humidity plays a big role in infection control. Can you expand on that a little bit and tell us a little bit more about how relative humidity affects infection control? So that, yeah, so that is absolutely what we are finding again and again and again, that there's a certain range of relative humidity that happens to be a very comfortable mid-range, 40 to 60%, is associated with uh, improved patient outcomes, you know, improved patient health, and actually improved health of all of us um, who are indoors. And that was a big surprise to me. The first, first study that revealed the importance of relative humidity, in my mind anyway, was uh, back in 2014 when we were looking at a brand new hospital building and tracking the microbial communities, so the bacteria and viruses that naturally inhabit a building. We call that the building microbiome. Humans have their own communities of, of bacteria and viruses that live in and on our bodies. That's normal. That's what's called our microbiome. So we were doing a study where, where we were investigating the, the um, population, populating of a new building with microbes. And concurrent with that, I looked at the patient outcomes in a, a segment of the building. And we were also monitoring uh, about 11 variables in patient rooms, carbon dioxide, humidity, temperature, light, visitor traffic, uh, particles, um, hand hygiene, might have already said that. Anyway, we had about 8 million data points from the environment. And when we, when we combine the environmental data points with patient outcomes, the most important variable to my complete surprise was that low relative humidity in the patient room is an independent variable that was associated with more infections. Hmm. I was absolutely astounded. Oh, but we had... Um... I think it was Dr. Brent Stevens on the show who, who did a big study of microbiome up in Chicago. It was a fascinating, where was the hospital you were looking at? Well, I'd actually rather not say because um, there was a lot of patient data in that. And I, I have yet to uh, finish the, the HIPAA regulations that will allow me to publish it. So let's just leave it at a big academic hospital. Okay. Understood. <laughs> You know, when you went in, the, the, your background's fascinating to me because, you know, you're, you're in the medical field, you're working with these kids, and, you know, you, you're obviously very knowledgeable in that area. But then you had the, uh, I don't know, the insight to realize that the building was very important, then went back and got your master's in architecture. We had a, an MD on many years ago, Dr. John Woulette who was one of the early pioneers in trying to help people figure out if environmental issues were, were affecting their health. And he'd go out to people's homes and so on. And, and I'm just wondering, what was the biggest, like, I don't know, you know, what, what made you kind of think, you know, something is, something's not right here that we could be doing a better job and then, and then go and, and figure out, um, you know, to, that it's the building and that you needed to learn more about buildings. What was the biggest, I guess, surprise to you with respect to buildings and learning about buildings when you really started to dig into it? Wow, you ask great questions, Joe. Um, well, I think it, ironically, is as I've gotten older, I've become, uh, my perspective has broadened. So, for example, when I first graduated from medical school, I was very in, involved in understanding how blood vessels grew to cancer cells. And then as I moved through my clinical work, I practiced uh, pediatric oncology. And then I became very interested in the role of our mind. So I practiced psychiatry for some years. Mm -hmm. And eventually I did my third residency in family practice, realizing that the whole family influences an individual's health. And then even more expansive than families, I realized that the the environment, you know, sort of like an evolutionary perspective, that our environment impacts our immune system, it impacts our sense of uh, our psychological state, 
it impacts our energy levels. It, it, you know, so as I've gotten older, my perspective has definitely broadened. So once I realized that the physical environment is, is probably important to patient outcomes, that's when I said, you know, I don't know anything about buildings or how to build them, how to run them, and I need to learn. So that's when I went back to school. Um, again, I was in my 40s, I think, and studying with these youngsters, and that was challenging. They were all complaining about their parents, and I was just like, oh, I have a child. I had a, have a child myself who's now in an emergency room position. But I said, look, everybody, we do the best we can. No, stop complaining. But in addition to the age difference, one of the things I learned that has helped me a lot is that it's very hard to cross professional silos. It was very hard for me as a physician, you know, feeling competent in my work. I'm a good diagnostician. I think I'm a good doctor. It was very, very hard for me to try to understand a different profession, that of architectural design, and to all of a sudden be a beginner and to be kind of clueless about the process. And that was so uncomfortable for me um, that when I look back on that experience, it helps me understand why building professionals and medical professionals, we don't communicate adequately. Mm-hmm. And, which is, I think, why I'm on this, this, this show, because I have bridged those silos. But it was very, it was hard in ways that I never expected. Hmm. And, and what, that was surprising to me. With respect to relative humidity, somewhere I was looking through some of your papers on the website, and, I, and one of them something caught my attention, the fact that I think it was that in the uh, operating rooms, they preferred a lower relative humidity because it was more comfortable, I guess. Did I get that right? And that that was actually the wrong thing to do? Yes, you did get that right. So um, some years ago, five, six years ago, the, the movement turned towards lowering relative humidity in the operating room. And so this is a good time to talk about relative humidity versus absolute humidity. So relative humidity is the amount of water vapor that's in the, in the air as a proportion of how much, how much water vapor the air can hold at that temperature. So, for example, if you're in, on a warm summer day, you know, you go outdoors and there's no dew on the grass, then you, at nighttime the temperature drops and in the morning you walk outside and you find that your shoes get wet from the dew. So what's happened is that the cooler temperature during the night doesn't hold as much moisture, and so the water condenses out. So relative humidity is a, is a, a value, it's a measurement of the amount of water vapor based on the temperature. So, and so surgeons and the clinicians in an operating room are usually covered with multiple layers of you know, gowns, or if they're using x-ray equipment, they have you know, used to be lead aprons. Now there's lighter materials. So the the clinicians want it nice and cool in the operating room because they have so many layers on. However, when you cool the air, just like in the morning when there's dew on the grass, you tend to condense out moisture. So the movement turned to lowering the relative humidity in the operating room so that you don't have to worry about condensation. Okay. But subsequently... What we're finding is that surgical site infection rates are actually on the rise in the operating rooms with lower relative humidity. So, you know, that's not really a surprise, but it's an unintended consequence. And how does relative humidity affect the the current situation with respect to the virus and the the coronavirus? Let's start with the virus itself. Does it change the ability of the virus to stay airborne longer? It does, Joe. So you think about, if you think about the uh, mechanisms of, of how the virus is spreading. So say someone is sick and they cough or sneeze or just talk or even just breathe, droplets are expelled from their airways. It happens to all of us when we breathe. We, we disseminate little droplets into the environment. And when the air is dry, those droplets 
shrink very, very rapidly. And once they reach uh, a size that's less than 10 microns in diameter, they escape the forces of gravity and they can stay in the airborne environment. They can stay in your breathing zone. They can travel around. Um, and so the availability of infectious droplets is, is greater when the air is dry. And I'm just curious, I want to go back a little bit to your current work. Are you, um, and let's talk about like right now, because there's a, you know, there's a crisis in the country. We've got this pandemic going on. What type of consulting are you doing now? So I do, um, I work a lot with ASHRAE, with the Epidemic Task Group. I work with the Environmental Health Committee, trying to um, stay abreast of the, the scientific literature both from a microbiology perspective, from a health perspective, and from a building management perspective, to put those three things together so we can create the most accurate building standards. So a lot of my work is, you know, reading articles and, and writing a synopsis and bringing the, those fields together. I also work with, with actual buildings. So I have, um, it's interesting, I've, I work with a, a group of nursing homes in New England, where we're managing the building to decrease uh, viral infections, including COVID. So in that work, um, I look at the patient outcomes, I look at the infections, I look at the, all the clinical metrics, correlate them with the indoor building factors, and then we make adjustments in how the building is managed, the ventilation, the temperature, the humidity, to, to decrease uh, risk of infectious particles in the air. So I've been working with a number of different building sectors, some schools, nursing homes, uh, some hotels, actually, to create the safest indoor environment possible. And COVID. Go ahead. I'm, I'm just wondering, when you're looking at mechanical systems and buildings, is there any particular uh, type of system where you seem to find there's more issues? I mean, and even maybe age of the system. Uh, have you seen anything like that? Um, well, I think probably the, the most universal finding, uh, in my experience anyway, is the lack of adequate humidification in a building. Um, mo unless a building houses a computer or a server or rare books or some materials that change in dry air, like wood or... Um, maybe some food processing. Most buildings that are simply occupied by humans don't have humidification. And if they do have hum humidification, the famous saying is the only good humidifier is one that's turned off. So mm -hmm. helping people understand that when you hear the word humidity or humidification, we're not talking about 80% humidity or relative humidity. You know, we're not talking about these excessively high levels we're aiming for 40 to 60%, which is the zone that is very healthy for people. And it diminishes the infectivity of uh, pathogenic or you know, the bad viruses and bacteria in your breathing zone. So lack of adequate humidification is the biggest problem I see. But then you, you know, begin to have that discussion and people start asking you, well, what about the building envelope? I humidify my building, I'm going to get condensation on the windows or, you know, problems associated with providing indoor humidity. Well, that's a huge issue. I want to, uh, maybe we'll save that for a little later in the discussion, but that's a big, big issue, I think, for a lot of our listeners. Um, and you're looking 40 to 60, that's a pretty reasonable range there. It's not, uh, shouldn't be too difficult, except in the winter in um, some of your colder climates with buildings that aren't airtight, you're going to have problems maintaining that. But uh, the other thing I've noticed in my experience, and I think most of our listeners would agree, is that humidification systems aren't well maintained. Are you seeing that as well? Absolutely. If you even see them. You're exactly right. Um, people are loath to, you know, they're, People see humidifiers often as obstacles. When you don't understand the benefits, you think, okay, well, first I have to purchase them, then I have to spend the energy to run them, and then I have to maintain them and clean them. 
and especially older units, you know, are more problematic uh, in terms of the cleaning or the different maintenance steps. There are newer systems out there that are, uh, you know, where you can remove the scale or there are different surface technologies or the use of UV light to keep them clean. But in general, people find the idea of maintaining a humidifier as being something they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Cliff, I think you've got a follow-up. I do. You know, while we're talking about HVAC systems, uh, I wonder whether or not you have a preference in terms of whether or not the patient rooms, uh, ICUs, uh, so on and so forth, should be negatively pressurized or positively pressurized and why? Okay, so moving to, so that's sort of obviously a different a different parameter in the built environment, but and it whether or not a patient room should be pressurized one way or the other really depends on the vulnerability of the patient in the room or the people outside the room. So, for example, if you come into a hospital and you have a drug-resistant tuberculosis, you're put into a room and you don't want the air from your lungs or the air from your room going out into the hallways. So if, if somebody's highly infectious, you want to have that room negatively pressured so that, you know, when someone opens the door, the air gets pulled into the room. Conversely, if a person is, has an impaired immune system or if they're in an operating room and they have an incision, you don't want organisms uh, getting to that person. So therefore, if somebody's vulnerable, you want to have a positively pressured room. Thank you. I know we're, we're jumping around a little bit here, but I've got so many questions I want to ask. And one of the other things before halftime I saw in one of your papers was that dry air impacts the human or impairs the human immune system, that dry air increases the transmission and infectivity of many viruses and bacteria. I think we touched on part of the part of that, but not the whole thing. And then when mold is already present on indoor surfaces, lowering the RH allows fungal parts and spores to aerosolize and become inhaled by patients and other building occupants. I think all of our listeners are familiar with number three. Let's go back to number one. Dry air impairs the human immune system. How exactly does it impair the system? So, yeah, that's something that we've always thought and maybe you have experienced yourself when you are on a long flight in an airplane, your lung, your lips, your eyes, your fingers get chapped. However, we really, we never really knew what the physiological impact of dry air was on say the respiratory immune system. Some really, really good research was done um, at Yale. It was published in March, let's see, May, 2019. Uh, Dr. Akiko Iwasaki, the head of the immunobiology department uh, did some excellent work with genetically engineered mice. They're genetically engineered to respond the same way humans do to influenza. And what Dr. Akiko's lab found is that when the air was maintained and the relative humidity was maintained at 10 to 20%, the the mammalian uh, respiratory immune system was dramatically impaired compared to say 50%. So what happens, it's, some of it's intuitive and some of it's not. The, the airways, the mucus lining the airways of the nose, sinuses, all the way down to your, uh, into your lungs, that mucus becomes thick when your inhaled air is dry. And when the mucus is thick, it can't capture particles the way it's supposed to. And in addition, there are these little hairs called cilia that are normally washing upwards away from your lungs. And the cilia sort of float in that layer of mucus, or they don't float because they're attached at one end, but they wave upward. And if that mucus even becomes, uh, even if the uh, viscosity increases by as little as 6%, the cilia can't work. And this is what happens with people with uh, cystic fibrosis. And this is the main reason people with CF get more lung infections. The mucus is thickened, not because of the dryness of the air, but just because of the genetic defect that's present. But anyway, when that mucus thickens up, the cilia can't work 
So particles and infectious microbes settle into your lungs. So that part's intuitive. But what Dr. Uh, Iwasaki's lab found that isn't so intuitive is that the other immune cells called macrophages and uh, dendritic cells, they don't secrete the protective proteins uh, in the category of interferon that normally would be secreted if there's any sort of threat to your immune system. So the first steps of the mucus and the cilia, that you could kind of think about intuitively. But the fact that other steps are also impaired in dry air is really, uh, was really surprising. But it also speaks to the magnitude of the importance of humidifying your indoor environment to the appropriate degree. What, what about when we have too much relative humidity? We're at 80, 90 percent, you know, 75. What does that have similar effects or is it to the, the opposite? So, I mean, that's a good that's a good question, Joe. You've asked a lot of good questions because, you know, most people think about humidification or humidity and they 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 don't restrict their thinking to a healthy mid zone. Because, yes, once you get above 60, 70 percent you have problems. Um, there's sometimes we see increased tra- uh, contact transmission of the bad microbes. When you get above 80%, you can have um, 80, 85%. Then mold actually can uh, use the water vapor as a growth medium when, it get, when you get very high humidity. Um, once you get over a certain uh, water activity level, you're gonna have condensation in your wall or around your pipes. And once you have liquid water, then you, you are at risk of uh, mold growth. Well, and then, I, I don't know, I'm just thinking of myself, when I'm in a real high relative humidity situation, I'm outside, let's say on a hot, humid day, I don't feel as vibrant. I don't feel like, you know, it, it feels like it kind of knocks down your system to some degree. Is there any is there any evidence that my theory is correct on that? <laughs> well, it's definitely correct. I mean, because you're a human being and that's how you feel. So by definition, your theory is correct. But beyond your individual experience, our body core temperature has to be maintained in a very a narrow range in order for all of our cells to work appropriately. And evaporative cooling is the way our body loses heat, um, in a hot climate. So when the humidity is higher outdoors, there's going to be less evaporation of sweat from your skin. And so, you know, you're, you naturally are, your body one way or another tells you to relax and cool it. Don't be too active. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right, let's, we've got to stop and thank our sponsors. We'll be back in 90 seconds with, with Dr. Stephanie Taylor. We're talking relative humidity, infections, buildings, and indoor air quality. IAQ Radio industry sponsors are Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org. The American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA. Healthier workplaces, a healthier world. Learn more at AIHA.org. And RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at RestorationIndustry.org. Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at SiriScience.org. That's C-I-R-I-Science.org. 
ACGIH, advancing the careers of professionals working in the environmental health, industrial hygiene, and safety communities. Interested in defining their science at ACGIH.org. Okay, we're back with Dr. Stephanie Taylor. Um, by the way, we, we've got to play taps. We'll do that at the end of the show. We lost a, a friend of the show here over the last week. But uh, before we do that, let me let me ask you this question. Are you doing any of your own kind of research on this topic? Or are you just using, you know, fi- your ability to go out and look at other research and then use that along with your, you know, your background in architecture and medicine? No, I'm definitely doing my own research. Um, so I'm doing work in, um, in nursing homes. I'm doing, doing work in the hotel, uh, several different hotel buildings. Uh, I'm consulting with some schools. I have a GSA project that I'm uh, working on. Hmm. So what, I'm what are just, your, sorry. Don't you know that you would like to know through this research? Wait, wait can you say that again, Joe? What, what don't you know now that you would like to learn through doing more research? Um, <laughs> I'm, la- I'm smiling because, again, you ask really good questions. What I really uh, am struggling with now, or not struggling with, but wanting to know more about is how do we manage buildings to keep them as safe as possible when the outdoor temperatures are cold? If you have an existing building where you, you just cannot reach 40% indoor relative humidity safety safely, you know, there's too much infiltration, the risk of condensation in the wall is too great. So what, what can we do to make up for that? So say we can only get our humidity to 30, 35%. What sorts of other technologies should we bring into a building, especially now with COVID-19 and people being very sensitized to the, you know, the risk of being exposed indoors? You know, what kind of UVC light, what kind of bipolar ionization, surface treatment, ventilation rate, filtration, um, how do those strategies work together um, in a realistic setting where we might not be able to optimize, for example, the humidity? Is using um, portable small-scale humidification part of that answer? Definitely. I mean, whatever it takes to get water vapor into your building helps, whether it's a, a steaming pot on your stove or a a shower in your hotel bathroom or uh, a portable humidifier. Those aren't the optimal long-term solutions, but they, anything that, anything that gets water vapor into the air is, is beneficial. Cause that's, you're, you're looking at a huge issue. I mean, millions and millions of dollars would need to be spent in my experience anyway, renovating buildings, tightening up, you know, tightening up buildings, properly insulating buildings. And that's just under the existing conditions um, prior to COVID. Now with COVID, and I I want you to comment on this for me, if you would, we're increasing the number of negative pressure rooms in a building. And I've got to imagine that is wreaking havoc on on buildings uh, across the country because they aren't designed to be pulling in that much air, especially during this time of the year when we've got hot, humid outdoor air. Mm-hmm. So what is your question? Is it, is well, your I'm question- just wondering, is that what you're seeing in these buildings? Or, you know, you're out working with health care, with, uh, you know, uh, with elderly care homes, you're working in schools and they're going, you know, in hospitals, I guess, is where it's really happening, where they're negatively pressurizing, you know, the whole wing of a building. Are they seeing negative effects from that yet or is that going to take a little longer so i think that when i think about negative effects i I still primarily think from the uh, in the mindset of a physician i think of negative effects on people's health and i i'm not aware of studies that show that when you do have negatively pressurized spaces that the health of the occupants indoors is being impaired However, I have to qualify that by saying that the health of occupants in a building is generally not associated with how the building is managed. So I don't think that 
those data points are even being uh, collected. So I, the short answer is I don't, I can't quote any studies or any work of my own that is showing the negative effects of uh, negative pressure in buildings. Although I certainly believe that depending on what's in the building envelope, you can run into problems. Yeah, that's my concern is you start to pull, you know, negative pressure in areas that weren't designed for that because they're modifying, you know, buildings to, especially in areas where they're getting a lot of people coming in with COVID. And I'm wondering if uh, we're starting to see any negative effects on the buildings at this point, but apparently you haven't seen that yet. Um, and I'm wondering if the, the task forces, if that's one of the things they are at all concerned about at this point, I guess, you know, first you've got to fix the, the horrible problem that we have and then maybe deal with the after effects later. I, I think that's right. But I'll tell you from my own personal perspective, my son is an emergency room physician, a big hospital in Boston. And he was telling me that they've, they converted a, a large area in the emergency room into their COVID uh, patient area. So they had about the capacity of about 25 patient beds in this part of the emergency department. And the physician and nurse documentation station was in the middle of that. And they negatively pressurized that whole space. So everybody was together with a negative pressure. And the exhaust grills were right near the documentation station. So as a physician, as someone knowledgeable in architecture and engineering, and as a mother, I lived in fear of that setting, Mm. that arrangement. And that's not filtered, I guess. Well, between the the patients in their beds and the document st- documentation station, there was no filtration. Oh, okay. Okay. No. Now I understand a little better. Now I'm, I'm going to go back to schools. I don't know how much you're working with schools. I've got my own uh, thoughts on how, uh, how well schools are going to do at reopening and trying to, keep the infection rate down. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you think we can do it, um, at least in some of the areas where the infection rates are lower? Are we going to be able to open schools without having another you know, major increase in, in COVID patients? I mean, I wish I had a crystal ball to, to really answer that with, with certainty. I think that when the, again, I think humidity indoors is a huge part of this. So I think right now, when the outdoor temperatures are fairly comfortable, there's not a a tremendous amount of heating going on in buildings, or maybe none at all. I think we're going to be more okay if schools can maintain the students with some appropriate distancing, if there can be appropriate mask wearing. Um, With kids, that's harder, you know, that's hard to do. once I think the heating season is on us and the indoor air becomes more dry, and if we don't have the vaccine at that point, and if there's, uh, I think we run the risk of the cases going, uh, increasing in the, the incidents going back up again. Yeah, that's my concern too. I think a lot of school buildings are, they're masonry construction. They, they don't even have insulation in, in a lot of these buildings. And once the weather turns, they're going to be dry. Um, that's, that's very what do you recommending cases in situations like that? Is there anything you can do? I mean, you can try and increase the relative humidity as much as you want. If you don't have the right building envelope, isn't it going to be, you know, really, really difficult to get the humidity up to the level you would like? Well, I think it's, you know, you can pour water vapor into a building and, and that's not the right thing to do if it's going to, be reaching the dew point in your interstitial spaces. I think any humidification that you can do safely is, is definitely valuable. And again, there are new systems out there. Um, you, but I, I agree, even in where I live in Northern Vermont, in my home, we finally started humidifying, but in the, when it's very, very cold out, we can only uh, safely humidify it to about 34%. Um, so, I, th- I think there are very significant challenges with existing buildings. There are other strategies that are beneficial. I'm sure Bill uh, talked about 
UVC, ultraviolet C lights for cleaning ductwork and in spaces that where people aren't directly exposed to the UVC. I think that can be beneficial. I don't think it's a substitute for appropriate humidification, but it helps. Uh, higher ventilation rates help dilute the pathogens in the air. If it's cold outdoors and you have a lot of outdoor air coming in, you're going to have to heat it, and that's an energy, uh, ener you know, that consumes energy and it decreases the humidity. So I think yep. these factors are going to have to be carefully balanced. You yeah, know, I think more vulnerable children shouldn't come to school, in my opinion, in, in during a, a significant heating season. You know, I just saw a new an article, I don't even know what paper it was based on. It just came out yesterday or, or maybe even this morning. And there has been this thought that very young children don't necessarily transmit the COVID as easily as we thought. And this article I saw yesterday or today said, no, no, they, they're finding they have just as much virus in their, you know, in their nasal passages and so forth. Maybe they don't get the infection as bad, but they do get it and they can pass it along. Is that something that you're familiar with? Yeah, I saw that article too. I think that was in Nature, in the Nature Daily release. Um, and it said, children, in fact, oh, I know, it was in the New York Times. It said, in case you're having a good day, try this on. The children, in fact, can transmit the virus, um, even though they themselves aren't as symptomatic. So I, I'm going to look into that more, but... Um, I certainly believe it's true. Interesting. Cliff, let me make sure you, if you have any follow-ups or if you've been watching, I haven't been able to watch the chat like I would like. Any questions from the chat you'd like well, to bring there, 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 There's one from the chat, but um, I, I'd just like to run, run something by a doctor. Um, I'm probably the oldest guy listening or the oldest person uh, in, the, in the conversation, but in, in any event, uh, you know, going back to World War II uh, in, in England, uh, they, the British were very concerned about putting people in these underground tunnels, uh, you know, when the Battle of Britain was going on. And what they ended up doing was uh, fogging uh, propylene glycol and other, you know, safe glycols. Uh, they added it. And I didn't realize that until you know, you spoke about the importance of the humidification, but to be able to also distribute uh, a product in there that's safe uh, for exposure and al also antimicrobial. And I've been harping about it ever since, uh, you know, we've had COVID because I think that you can put little uh, ultrasonic humidifiers into areas where, um, you know, you have high-risk people. You know, my mother's uh, 92. She's in assisted living. Uh, we've had HEPA filtration, and we've had these uh, air cleaners uh, in her room, and it turned out that uh, several people in the building were exposed, and actually one of her caregivers uh, um, actually came down positive. So we're waiting for my mom's second test to come back, but hopefully uh, this has protected her. And as of two days ago, uh, the building is now using it uh, throughout the building uh, in public areas. You know, we donated uh, a large device which humidifies and, and atomizes it. So I'm going to send you a link. Uh, wow, it's pretty okay. much proven to, this is proven technology. It goes back to the 40s and the 50s and uh, I actually have it up on the chat, but I, I, I will send it to you. I, I think it will help. It, it's simple. It's cheap. We've known about it for a long time. And I think it's one of the things that's been forgotten. I'm fascinated by that. I look forward to, to reading the link. I totally forgot about filtration. I didn't forget about it, but I didn't mention it. And one of the ASHRAE recommendations is, is using a MERV 13 uh, filter in your, in your buildings to to decrease the bio burden of, of any infectious droplets. So I think that's another strategy that needs to be uh, paid attention to. I've got a, another chat question, which is something I was going to be getting to anyway. And it's, you say your house in Vermont can only safely attain 34% in RH in midwinter. How do all the people in even colder climates, Canada, Alaska, even come close to getting to 40 to 60% relative humidity? In the wintertime? 
Well, you know, it can be done. My home is an old farmhouse. Um, so it's, it wasn't constructed to be airtight and there's a lot of infiltration. Having said that, even 30, 35% uh, is a much more comfortable uh, environment than before we humidified at all. Neither my husband nor I have gotten sick. Um, he has some respiratory issues from being exposed to chemicals and uh, being in the Air Force, but it's been great. Even though we can't always get 40%, it's been very comfortable. But back to your question, in a lot of buildings, it, it will be difficult. And if, uh, if there's not appropriate uh, vapor barriers or insulation or building envelope, you know, th there can be secondary problems. I do know there's a museum in Burbank, Alaska that houses Alaskan artifacts. There's a lot, there are quite a few windows and the engineering firm prides itself on having created a building that can, can contain 40 to 60% relative humidity, even with sub-zero outdoor conditions. I'm sure that building was expensive to build. Um, the window sections look very well thought out, but most buildings, there are challenges in the winter, but we can still achieve a better environment. You can still aim for that zone instead of completely ignoring the need for humidification, which is what most buildings do. Good point. I mean, that's, and that's, that's common sense too. I, I really like that, uh, that approach, you know, and, and I, the other thing I would recommend, and I, I don't know whether we'll get to this point or not, but supposedly we're going to, you know, be investing a lot of money and, you know, rebuilding the country and, and coming back from this mess. I would think a lot of that money should go into better weatherization of homes and, and trying to make them make their building envelope and the building itself more likely to be able to raise the, relative humidity a little bit without uh, significant problems. So I'm, I'm hoping that this whole thing turns into, you know, a little more interest in people's uh, investing in better indoor environments, better buildings where we can get that relative humidity up to a safer level. I completely agree with you. And I think the other thing, Joe, is that we may begin to find that we use buildings differently. So for example, in a hospital, even though right now the, um, Joint Commission requires, and the Facility Guidelines Institute got, requires that every patient room have windows and views of the outdoors. You know, we may find that putting your more vulnerable patients away from the building envelope is more advantageous. And again, this isn't something that's in the building codes, but personally, I like to think about uh, biology and how Mother Nature solves certain problems. And if I look at, a, for example, a beehive, you know, you don't put the queen in the in the outermost part of the hive where she's the most vulnerable. They're hmm. different. There's a hierarchy of uh, there's a hierarchy in how the spaces are used. So I think that as we turn our focus in building management from energy consumption and just real estate value, and as we begin to realize that buildings first and foremost should be shelters for human beings. We, we're going to really start thinking about, uh, we're going to change our metrics. It's not just going to be how much you pay for energy. It's how much are you willing to pay for healthy occupants? And I think there are going to be many uh, changes in the industry, products around how do you create a building envelope that can maintain appropriate moisture? What sorts of humidification, dehumidification compounds can be built into your structure to help modulate indoor water vapor. I think, I think there are going to be many downstream changes as we realize how important this is. You, you bring up a great point. I, I, I might add, you know, that maybe you can't get your entire building to the point where you can maintain 40% on, on the low end in those cold climates, but, but can we get one room? And maybe that would be the room where you spend the most time, which is your bedroom. Um, yeah. So I think, I think you bring up a great point. I think we have to be reasonable. I like that expression, perfect is the enemy of good. We, we will not be able to achieve perfection, but that shouldn't stop us from making progress towards that end. Okay, let's go to the roundup, John. Mm -hmm. 
final questions. Um, I guess I want to be real practical on this final question. Is there any specific type of humidifier, the brand even, and we can mention brands that, that you recommend for people in their, you know, in their residence, maybe for in their bedroom, at least at night, so that it, in the evening during these periods where we get low relative humidity, they at least get some kind of uh, elevation of that humidity in their room. Is there, is there, sorry, is there any brand that I would recommend? Any brand, any type, any, you know, what is it? Anything you, any type that you found works better than others? Um, well, I, I happen to myself, my husband and I have a Condair steam humidifier in the main floor of our house, um, which works really well. Uh, there, I think Honeywell makes some good ones. Again, I'm not really, uh, I'm not a salesperson or a vendor. So um, mm -hmm. those are the, I like Condair. I think their, their hygiene cert certification is puts them a, uh, in a class of their own. But again, I'm not a vendor, so I, I can't talk with authority about all the other units. Understood. Understood. Cliff, let me see. Do you have any final questions? Can you see? I don't know if you can see my oh, humidifier. Oh, I see. Yeah, I can see that. All right. What do you got it's, going uh, on? Uh, this is like 50 bucks uh, at Amazon.com. So uh, it does a nice job and it's inexpensive. And, you know, we've been fogging glycol and, and water for, for months here, but in any event, uh, works pretty well and it's inexpensive and, um, you know, it's easy to clean. And uh, I don't know. I, I just don't know why a lot more people aren't using it, but now I'll be even more of an advocate. I just never really thought that, um, you know, the humidity was that important for health. And now that I know better, I'll be pushing it even more. Excellent. Glad okay. I'm glad you're seeing the value in it. Absolutely. Let me just finish this way, uh, Dr. Taylor. Any final thoughts, uh, anything I missed that you really wanted to make sure our listeners, and, and they're primarily, like I said, indoor air quality consultants and contractors and restoration folks, final thoughts for them. So I guess uh, two thoughts. One, when you're thinking about humidity and you're thinking about different geographical regions, make sure you understand the difference between outdoor climactic factors and the indoor environment because they're not the same. So for, for example, in Florida, it can be hot and humid outdoors, but you air condition your building. Um, and so the indoor humidity is going to be very different from the outdoor. So just keep in mind when you're thinking about this to differentiate between outside and inside. And secondly, Joe, you mentioned that you were going to ask this, but I think we didn't get to it. And that is if you do have mold or fungal growth in a building, the worst thing you can do is just to simply dehumidify that space because then you have pieces of the mold breaking apart and being disseminated into the air where you can inhale it. So mm. if you do have mold, you know, continue to, to maintain the 40 to 60 the best you can. You know, get a mold remediation person in to, to clean it out. But don't just simply dehumidify. Good point. Excellent point. And I, I just want to thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I've been looking forward to the interview and it did not disappoint. Uh, Dr. Stephanie Taylor, it's great to have you. And then, you know, maybe um, as this, as we get a little further away from this current, you know, situation and you start to uh, do a little more, get more back on your current research and thoughts, we'd love to get you back sometime to talk a little bit, a little bit more about this topic. Great. Well, thank you so much. And you've asked amazing questions. Well, thanks for joining us. Dr. Stephanie Taylor, before we go, we want to uh, say, uh, we're going to play the taps for Ralph Hempfield Onion, who was, uh, any of you that attended the HBS Summits know uh, Onion was our singer and lead guitar player, and uh, unfortunately, he got the COVID, and this past weekend, he died at the VA, uh, a, a proud Marine, um, unfortunately, no longer with us.
Uh, sorry to see you go, Onion. What a great guy. Well, just a, a, a fantastic human being. But uh, a lot of them are losing their life, unfortunately, here recently with this whole situation. This is Radio Joe saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Stephanie Taylor, to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. At the controls, John, you got to have faith. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. By the way, next week, we've got Lou Harriman joining us before we take our summer break. Uh, this would have been, let's see, summer camp should have been this week coming up, actually. And uh, unfortunately, it's been canceled because of the COVID situation. And uh, so we're going to bring one of the regulars at summer camp on to talk about a new ASHRAE document on dampness in buildings and uh, looking forward to a great interview with Lou on the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 